Welcome to a very special edition of some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. Today's episode will be presented in three parts, and at the conclusion of part three of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, the complete story of American crime boss and 16-year federal fugitive, James J. Whitey Bulger. Now let's continue with our story about Whitey Bulger. After receiving more fake ID from Kevin Weeks, Whitey and Grieg took a train to California, arriving there sometime in the fall of 1996. Whitey knew Los Angeles and knew Santa Monica was one of the nicer but quieter neighborhoods in the city. They were incredibly lucky to quickly find an average-looking two-bedroom apartment at the Princess Eugenia, a three-story building with 27 units. Rent-controlled, even luckier, the apartment management did not require a lease, references, credit check, or formal identification. Whitey was already familiar with manufacturing a false identity. Before they even found the apartment, he had purchased a social security number from a homeless person on the street named Charlie Gasca. He and Grieg signed any rental documents with the name Charles and Carol Gasco. Things went smoothly for several years, Bolger and Grieg burrowing deeply into their new life and their new identity. Extremely quiet, neat, and polite, they made little impression on their new neighbors. Bolger, not wanting to be caught short without any backup IDs, hit the jackpot with an individual that he met on the walkway along the bluff overlooking Santa Monica Bay that was three blocks from Whitey's apartment. James William Lawler was an alcoholic street person that, aside from three inches in height, bore an uncanny resemblance to Whitey. Estranged from any family, he was also broke, and Whitey befriended him and gave him modest amounts of money before eventually convincing Lawler to sell him his California driver's license, social security number, and birth certificate. He convinced him that he actually was a Canadian citizen who needed the ID to stay in the country. Bolger eventually paid him another $2,500 to allow Whitey to acquire a California ID card in his name, the height and weight adjusted to match Bolger. He also put him up at a cheap residential hotel and paid Lawler's rent for 10 years. Using Lawler's ID, Bolger was able to open bank accounts, buy and register a car, and have ID with his picture on it, but with a different name. When Lawler died in 2007, he was buried in a veteran's cemetery, and Whitey continued using his identity. Although the couple blended in, there was one actual close call. In 2000, most likely returning from Mexico, where they purchased Whitey's heart medicine without a prescription, Catherine Grieg walked into a beauty salon in Fountain Valley, California, right near the San Diego freeway, about an hour away from Santa Monica in Orange County. She told the manager that she was in a hurry, her husband was waiting, but she had some hair dye and just needed someone to apply it. An older man was parked directly in front of the shop, keeping an eye intently on the situation. 
but when the manager asked if he would like to wait inside, Grieg specifically refused. The fugitive was in and out quickly, and none of the employees thought anything of it. But when a regular customer saw a profile of Whitey Bulger on America's Most Wanted on January 29, 2000, she contacted the program, who alerted the FBI. An L.A.-based FBI agent was sent to the beauty salon, and soon a press release picked up by prominent local media proclaimed that, yes, Whitey Bulger and Catherine Grieg were positively identified as having been in Fountain Valley, California, and might still be in Southern California. Be on the lookout. Then Boston FBI issued their own press release stating that the woman in question only resembled Grieg and that there was, quote, no confirmed sighting of Bulger, unquote. Within weeks, a reporter for WBUR, the local Boston NPR outlet, David Borey, visited the vicinity of the nail salon and asked other merchants if anyone from the FBI had interviewed or even contacted them concerning Bulger and Grieg's alleged visit. The answer was no. Even more incredible, Borey determined that although the owner-manager was questioned by the lone L.A. agent, the customer who called in the tip was never contacted by anyone from the Bureau. Then as long as he was in California, Borey decided to talk to immigration officials at the U.S.-Mexico border to determine if FBI claims of plastering all border crossings with wanted posters and alerting numerous border officials of the probability that Whitey might at some point cross into Mexico to purchase heart medicine had any validity. Customs and Immigration at Tijuana responded when interviewed that they knew nothing of Whitey, and while Bory saw other wanted posters at the border crossing, he did not see Whitey's. This despite Bolger's presence on the Bureau's 10 most wanted list. When confronted with this information, the FBI doubled down, claimed that they had extensively informed border officials about the fugitive, and maintained that it wasn't their fault if nobody listened to them. Wanting to give the agency every benefit of the doubt, Bory went back to Tijuana and asked Customs again about Whitey, and again they said that no one from the FBI had ever even contacted them. This was consistent with the utterly inefficient effort the FBI evinced from the moment Bolger disappeared. It took a year for the FBI to even interview Teresa Stanley after she had to request a meeting. Then they took six months to get to Grand Isle, Louisiana, to talk to anyone there. After the revelations of the Bureau's relationship with Bolger and Fleming became front-page news, much was made of the FBI forming a new task force to bring Whitey to justice. Who was to be at the vanguard of this law enforcement powerhouse? Again, John Gamble, the agent who couldn't even locate Teresa Stanley's house. It wasn't long before major media outlets were speculating about whether or not the Bureau was really even trying to seriously locate Bolger. After the Fountain Valley debacle in January of 2003, much ado was made over a confirmed FBI sighting of Whitey in London near Piccadilly Circus. An individual identified only as a businessman claimed to have seen Whitey on the street near the Meridian Hotel on September 10, 2002. He recognized him because he stated that eight years earlier, in 1994, he worked out with and shared a conversation with Bolger in the Meridian over a sandwich. The individual who introduced himself as Jimmy discussing his stint at Alcatraz. Eight years later, the man claimed that he recognized Bolger, called him by the name of Jim, and even tapped him on the shoulder. 
but the individual immediately became flustered, said that the businessman was mistaken, and walked away quickly. Why didn't the man pursue one of America's most wanted criminals on the top 10 fugitive list, at least to follow him down the street and figure out his local address? Here's the explanation via a 2003 interview, which aired on NPR's All Things Considered with Boston Globe reporter Shelley Murphy, who apparently personally interviewed this individual who would not identify himself. Quote, well, what happens is he thinks it's a little odd, but he remembers that Bolger had told him that he had this little bit of a mysterious, you know, criminal past. And he thinks, well, that's a little strange, but he's still convinced that this is who he thinks it is. He's watching a movie, the movie Hannibal, about a week or so later, and on the screen flashes that scene of the Italian police inspector searching the FBI website for the fugitive, you know, fictional character Hannibal, and up pops James Whitey Bolger, and immediately it clicks with this man and says, whoa, that's the guy, and he goes to the FBI website himself and reads for himself that Bolger is indeed a fugitive. It is only after this revelation that the businessman contacts the FBI. So a man who had a brief conversation with a stranger is walking down a crowded London street eight years later, and not only is he able to even positively identify this individual, he immediately recalls his first name. Interestingly, Whitey Bolger does appear in the 2001 film Hannibal twice, once for approximately four seconds in a group shot of several wanted individuals in which his picture is blurry and his name illegible, and again in the scene mentioned in the interview where the camera pans over Osama bin Laden and Bolger for no more than a second, which our businessman friend is watching and processes instantaneously. This is the first credible sighting in three years, said Gail Marcinkowitz, the FBI's spokeswoman in Boston. We know that he was in London in September. It is this account that is cited for the next decade by the FBI as the only verified sighting of Whitey and is critical because it is the encounter that they use to justify their focus, not on the U.S., but on Europe. Scotland Yard did pursue a search of deposit boxes in the area, which led them to an alternate location and the contents of a box rented in 1994 by Whitey, which contained $50,000, Whitey's Irish passport, and a key to another deposit box in Dublin. What received less attention was that the bank, Barclays, notified William Bolger, a contact listed by Whitey, that the initial branch would be closing and the box's contents moved, hence the new location where it was discovered by Scotland Yard. Bill Bolger subsequently claimed that neither he or any member of his family knew about the box and had never been contacted by the bank. The inevitable FBI press release did take partial credit with Scotland Yard for finding the deposit boxes, despite not acting on this information for six years, having been told specifically by Teresa Stanley of Whitey's various trips through prominent European cities solely for the purpose of stashing cash and essential ID. For the next eight years, the FBI continued to insist that Whitey was in Europe. In 2006, FBI agent Kevin Klein stated in an interview, I think he's in Europe. Richard Tehan, who became the newest supervisor of the Bolger Task Force in 2008, kicked off his tenure with the comment, we're going to continue our focus in Europe. 
whether this perspective was born out of a deliberate intent to avoid finding Bolger or was the result of mere incompetence, the undeniable fact rendering this course of action and the entire London story as preposterous was that once he established himself in Santa Monica in late 1996, Whitey Bolger never left the country. After 9-11, he even ceased crossing the Mexican border to pick up medication, now considering even that process too risky of a proposition. Any rational, sincere examination of the Piccadilly Circus story would have resulted in an obvious conclusion. The story was utter nonsense, but for nine years the FBI would hype it as a fact. Like gasoline thrown on a fire in February 2008, skepticism escalated after the FBI in September 2007 breathlessly produced video and photos of an unidentified couple wandering around Taormina, Sicily, which the Bureau asserted in a press release, of course, might be Whitey Bulger and Catherine Grieg. Facial recognition technology used on the photographs was inconclusive. A cursory glance should have sufficed as the woman in the material looked old enough to be Catherine Grieg's mother. But the FBI persisted in a dog and pony show appearing on various media in the UK, Spain and Germany, disseminating a photo worldwide for months, including it on the front page of the Bureau's website. This process came to a crashing halt when the photos were shown on the German equivalent of America's Most Wanted and an aghast German couple came forward to acknowledge that they were the individuals on film. Later in 2008, an individual by the name of Keith Messina was visiting Santa Monica from Las Vegas. On June 28th, he was walking on the Santa Monica Pier when he saw an elderly man chatting up a couple, the younger male wearing a Boston Celtics t-shirt. He caught a part of their conversation, which seemed to be about Newberry Street, Messina returned home, did some internet research, and concluded that the elderly man he saw was Whitey Bulger. He subsequently called America's Most Wanted, who later confirmed that Messina had called and left such a tip about Whitey in Santa Monica. No one from the FBI ever called him or contacted him in any way. By 2010, despite their public assurances that they were diligently pursuing Whitey Bulger and had a team of seven agents pursuing leads full-time. In truth, only one investigator was on the case. A few others were only pursuing it on top of other responsibilities. But according to later reported accounts, in mid-2010, there was a new U.S. attorney, new U.S. marshal for the District of Massachusetts, and a new head of the Boston FBI office, which resulted in a renewed spirit of cooperation between all three entities to at least review the Bulger case with an eye towards a more vigorous approach. About the same time in the spring of 2010, the Bureau announced that it would now focus on Grieg as opposed to Whitey, and to that end it placed ads in the Plastic Surgery News and the American Dental Association monthly newsletter with photos of Grieg from the early 90s. The ad mentioned that Grieg might be attempting to replace breast augmentations implanted in 1982 or have cosmetic dentistry done as she was quite meticulous about her teeth. The campaign was received with a predictable derision from especially the Boston press. Placing ads in a plastic surgery trade journal was not exactly an all-hands-on-deck, frenzied international manhunt. But the ad fulfilled the FBI public relations need for some official answer to the question of what the agency was actually doing to find Whitey. 
This was evident in the annual Where's Whitey article that always appeared in the Boston Globe around the anniversary of Bolger's flight after the tip-off from Conley. In the January 4, 2011 article, Richard, We're Going to Continue Our Focus in Europe, Tehan, commented that the Bureau was aggressively pursuing the 50 to 100 leads that were generated from the avid readers of dental and plastic surgery newsletters. We just think it's important not to give up and to keep pushing. Worldwide exposure is what will cause him to be apprehended. But nothing happened. It would take another sequence of events to answer the persistent question of where Whitey actually was. On May 1, 2011, 24 Navy SEALs and Black Hawk helicopters crossed over the Pakistani border from Afghanistan. They successfully raided a secluded compound in Abbottabad, Pakistan, and killed Osama bin Laden, the mastermind behind the 9-11 attack on America. Although reaction in the U.S. from the federal government, the media, and the public was overwhelmingly jubilant, a quick undercurrent of resentment began to surface about Pakistan's role in potentially shielding bin Laden. Abbottabad was the location of Pakistan's primary military academy and officer training school, a facility with 4,000 military personnel and a pronounced military footprint. That bin Laden could have hidden in such a location without the knowledge of senior military officials seemed implausible with the Pakistani government covertly guaranteeing his safety. At the very least, Pakistani inability to locate bin Laden was a remarkable intelligence failure and a manifestation of grave incompetence. Immediately defensive, the Pakistani government denied aiding bin Laden, and then the Pakistani ambassador to the U.S. in an interview published on May 2nd made this incendiary comment. The fact is, mafia figures manage to do this sort of thing in Brooklyn, and Pakistan is a country that does not have the highly developed law enforcement capabilities that your country possesses. If Whitey Bolger can live undetected by American police for so long, why can't Osama bin Laden live undetected by Pakistani authorities? There may be more important foreign policy relationships than the United States and Pakistan, but few are more complicated and Byzantine. Pakistan is openly engaged in terrorist attacks against India, provided nuclear weapons materials and expertise to North Korea, engaged in, in internal military coups resulting in the execution of its own national leaders, and harbored various radical terrorist groups that have carried out attacks against the West. Despite behavior that should have consigned Pakistan to the status of international pariah, the U.S. has continued to maintain a relationship with one of the most strategically important regimes in the world because it has no other choice. For Pakistan to be able to publicly minimize the bin Laden situation and even stigmatize the American government with a comment attempting to depict U.S. law enforcement and intelligence as just as ineffectual as a third world country, as well as allowing Pakistan to deflect any responsibility for bin Laden's presence, was unacceptable at the highest levels of the American executive branch. How unacceptable would be evident in a matter of days. On May 12, 2011, President Barack Obama met privately with FBI Director Robert Mueller and Attorney General Eric Holder. It is unfortunate for the purpose of this presentation that attitudes about Robert Mueller have become so polarized subsequent to his recent investigation of the Russian election collusion situation involving President Donald Trump. 
because Robert Mueller was the head of the FBI during most of Whitey Bulger's 16-year flight from prosecution, his exact role in the matter deserves scrutiny. But unbeknownst to most Americans, Robert Mueller was also affiliated with the Boston office of the Department of Justice beginning in 1982, first as chief of the criminal division, first assistant U.S. attorney, and then from 1987 until 1988 as U.S. attorney for the District of Massachusetts, the individual who oversaw the entire DOJ operation in the state. This would have been at the height of Whitey Bulger's criminal career and collusion with the FBI, as well as during the prosecution of the Angelo crime family, during Mueller's Russiagate investigation, while some of Donald Trump's adherents in the media, including individuals like Sean Hannity and Donald Trump himself, did raise the issue of Mueller's possible involvement in aiding and abetting Bulger's reign of terror, they did this by mostly attempting to connect Mueller to the scandal involving the 1975 conviction of the four defendants knowingly framed by the FBI, defendants eventually exonerated and paid over $100 million. However, what specific knowledge and interaction Mueller had with both the Boston FBI and its organized crime unit and his knowledge of the Bulger-Fleming relationship has never been revealed. During the entire Bulger affair, Robert Mueller refused to specifically discuss his role. A comment made in Boston in 2007 was typical of his evasiveness. Quote, I think the public should recognize that what happened happened years ago, unquote. This while Whitey Bulger was still a fugitive from justice. And while it may be possible for Robert Mueller to maintain that he had nothing to do with the strike force that prosecuted the Angelos, it is far more difficult to accept that as the head of the entire DOJ Massachusetts office for over a year, he knew nothing about the special relationship between Bulger and the DOJ and FBI and the Bureau's continued dysfunctional obstruction concerning other Massachusetts law enforcement agencies attempting to make a case against Bulger. Perhaps this is why Robert Mueller's tenure as U.S. attorney for the Massachusetts District has been scrubbed from both official FBI and DOJ website biographies, and the date of his exact departure from this post is not mentioned. Like the FBI itself, Robert Mueller's public image has always been a carefully crafted persona of the tough Vietnam veteran ex-Marine and straight shooter, unaffected by the partisan agendas of those lacking his integrity. But even a cursory examination of his fundamental role in some of the most abhorrent and disastrous excesses of the U.S. government in the past 20 years paint a far different picture. For over two decades, several ongoing lawsuits filed by the families of 9-11 victims have attempted to hold the government of Saudi Arabia accountable for not only the attack, but the enabling of other Saudi nationals who may have supported this operation. Pursuant to this lawsuit, numerous affidavits from former FBI investigators have alleged that Mueller personally was involved in minimizing and even shutting down the Bureau's own investigation into the Saudi government's role in 9-11, an action carried out at the behest of the Bush administration.
In 2003, one month before the invasion of Iraq, Mueller testified before the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, reiterating that Iraq was one of seven state sponsors of terrorism and a supporter of terrorist groups that specifically targeted Americans, and that, quote, as Director Tenet has pointed out, Secretary Powell presented evidence last week that Baghdad has failed to disarm its weapons of mass destruction, willfully attempting to evade and deceive the international community. Our particular concern is that Saddam Hussein may supply terrorists with biological, chemical, or radiological material, unquote. Subsequently, these comments, as well as Secretary Colin Powell's address to the U.N. concerning weapons of mass destruction, proved to be a deliberately dishonest attempt to achieve both international consensus and to manipulate the American people. Mueller's callousness and even arrogance in refusing to take responsibility for injurious FBI investigations was evidenced in the ordeal of Stephen Hatfill, a biological weapons expert that the Bureau investigated over his potential involvement with anthrax mailed to Senators Tom Daschle and Patrick Leahy in 2001. Mueller took personal control of the case, at one point even briefing both senators on evidence the FBI director proclaimed unequivocally that implicated Hatfill. Hatfill, his name repeatedly leaked to the press and subjected to 24-7 surveillance, which included the FBI accidentally running over his foot, was eventually officially exonerated and awarded almost $5 million in a settlement with the Justice Department. Only weeks afterward, Mueller made the following statement, quote, I am unapologetic. I do not apologize for any aspect of the investigation that was undertaken over the years, and I think it was erroneous to say there were mistakes. Presumably, Mueller also believes it was not a mistake to run over Hatfield's foot, although the lack of any Mueller involvement with the Whitey Bulger scandal and the 1975 framing of criminal defendants became the predominant media perspective during the Russiagate proceedings. Subsequent events concerning the FBI and this issue were omitted. As far back as 1983, a Massachusetts parole board member named Michael Albano voted to release Peter Limone, one of the four convicted individuals framed by the FBI in 1975. Subsequently, Albano claimed that he was visited by two FBI agents who attempted to intimidate him by telling him that if he wished to remain in public life, he should not continue to support Limone's parole. The two FBI agents who made the threat John Conley, and John Morris. Albano also stated that he saw a letter signed by Robert Mueller opposing Lamone's parole written in the mid-80s, undermining claims that Mueller never had anything to do with the case. Subsequently, despite a previous 2011 Boston Globe article that contained information about Mueller's parole board correspondence, an April 13, 2018 Boston Globe article meticulously refuted allegations that Mueller had anything to do with the 1975 case or any involvement with Bolger, even going so far as to print statements from the federal judge who presided over the subsequent civil case and Lamoni's attorney, stating that she had never seen any such letters. But the Globe left out a relevant postscript to this incident. In 1995, Michael Albano was elected mayor of Springfield, Massachusetts, the third largest city in the state. In the late 90s, a federal investigation of widespread mafia criminal activity in western Massachusetts and Springfield precipitated numerous indictments and convictions of underworld figures. 
But in 2001, only months after Mueller became head of the FBI, the Bureau initiated an investigation of the Springfield Municipal Government, an inquiry involving $210,000 in city loans. While Albano was never charged, his chief of staff and another associate were convicted. Albano maintained that these prosecutions were both vindictive and an attempt to diminish any potential testimony he might offer in any matters involving his tenure at the parole board and FBI intimidation and conduct in the 80s. It would seem peculiar that only two months after 9-11, the FBI would be probing a municipality with only 150,000 people, involving only a few hundred thousand dollars. It does not seem implausible that behind closed doors on May 12, 2011, that Barack Obama might have had a pointed conversation with Robert Mueller concerning Whitey Bulger. What was formerly a regional FBI scandal, unknown to many Americans, was now threatening to become a major international issue, impeding any accounting for the presence of bin Laden in Pakistan and any potential ability for the U.S. government to leverage such an incident. Obama and Mueller emerged from their meeting with a surprising announcement. Mueller, scheduled for mandatory 10-year retirement in a matter of months, would hopefully be extended for another two years. That this extension would require congressional scrutiny and special legislation underlined this extraordinary turn of events. That this extension also might have coincided with the famously non-confrontational Barack Obama expressing his concern over the Pakistan matter, now an issue at the forefront of American foreign policy, and specifically suggesting that Bob and the Bureau, after 16 years, should get off their collective posteriors and lock up Bolger seems quite likely. Anyone doubting this scenario might like to explain why, in early May, the attitude toward Whitey Bulger took on a newfound specific urgency. How do we know this? Because in early May, an FBI employee named Molly Halpern, who worked in media production and formerly lived and worked in Maine, reached out to a contact, Angela Helton, the head of a tiny video production company in Portland, Maine. She asked Angela if she would be interested in working with the FBI on a huge media campaign. Another very small Portland video production shop, Blackfly Media, headed by Charlie Berg, was also hired to help with the production of what turned out to be a 30-second commercial style to appear to be a public service announcement. Once the two freelancers became aware that their video topic was Whitey Bulger, they were sworn to secrecy. They then spent three weeks, sometimes working 12 to 14 hour days with as many as four FBI agents to produce the 30 second spot. Already, this process begs several questions. Why the urgency, a case that had dragged on for 16 years with only skeletal staffing, now suddenly has four full time agents assigned to produce a video in three weeks after the FBI's last attempt at a media placement was a half assed ad in some industry trade journal that sufficed for over 18 months? Why Portland, Maine? According to Halpern, they had the professional qualifications to do it. Being from New England, they are familiar with the case. Nobody from Boston was familiar with the case? Perhaps the FBI was attempting to make absolutely sure that word did not leak out about their urgent project, a much more difficult task if those involved were from a larger Boston operation. But that begged another question. Why the secrecy? Supposedly, the FBI didn't know where Whitey was. 
So what if the whole world, including Whitey, found out about the new video? Unless the FBI was adhering to their own prearranged process that relied on Whitey not knowing, or more importantly, not reacting. On June 20, 2011, with their video produced and on the verge of dissemination, the FBI held a news conference in Boston announcing that they were about to release a PSA-style 30-second spot that focused on Catherine Grieg. The ad would run on local daytime television in 14 cities and appear on such shows as The View, Dr. Oz, Regis and Kelly, and The Ellen Show, targeting mostly females who might have had some interaction with Grieg. Before the ad even started appearing on the 21st, the FBI news conference received attention on cable news outlets like CNN, CNBC, and Fox News. Unlike previous campaigns or even revelations about the Bolger case, there was little time for analysis or skepticism because on Wednesday, June 22nd, at approximately 8 p.m. local Los Angeles time, 11 p.m. Boston time, the stunning announcement came that the FBI had arrested James Whitey Bolger and Catherine Grieg in an apartment building in Santa Monica, California, only 48 hours after the Bureau's news conference concerning the PSA and only 20 24 hours after the PSA ran in a selected group of television markets. By June 23rd, a rough outline of the sequence of events that led to the arrests was presented in a news conference that included Boston FBI office head Richard Delorier and U.S. Attorney Carmen Ortiz. After Ortiz made a statement, Delorier stated that the FBI's L.A. office received a phone call on Tuesday at 8 p.m. Pacific time. The caller provided names and an exact address. This tip was forwarded to the FBI in Boston. At 10.45 a.m. local time the next day, the L.A. FBI was asked to begin surveillance at the location. By 4 p.m., agents as well as LAPD were in place. At 5.45, Bolger was lured from the building and arrested. Grieg was arrested in the apartment moments later. The FBI then searched the apartment, a search that turned up numerous semi-automatic weapons and other guns, $822,198 in cash, and a few other odd possessions, including a 1986 Montreal Canadian Stanley Cup ring. After cursory remarks by other law enforcement officials, media began shouting questions, and two in particular would only add to the general skepticism. When U.S. Attorney Ortiz was asked for booking photos, she curtly replied, quote, We don't provide booking photos, unquote. To be fair, the release of booking photos was and has been a contentious federal issue revolving around a suspect's right to privacy and presumption of innocence. But the federal government has the discretion to release booking photos and frequently does if it is to their public relations advantage. Only a year earlier, New Jersey terrorist suspects Carlos Almonte and Mohamed Alessa's booking photos were widely disseminated. As recently as the alleged plot to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer, all of the suspects arrested had their booking photos released. This was critical to the Bolger arrest because, obviously, immediate comparisons would be made to the PSA to see if there was anything close to a resemblance. Questions also started to focus on why the FBI had not run the PSA in the Los Angeles area, despite at least one credible and some possible sightings of Bolger in the vicinity. Carmen Ortiz responded with a rambling and not very convincing response that, well, once news organizations got a hold of the PSA, this became a national and international distribution. 
As always, with reporters still shouting questions, the news conference concluded. If the FBI expected unmitigated praise for this apprehension, if anything, the news, timing, and the subsequent general account of how it had transpired brought a crescendo of derision from the public that only increased pressure on the FBI. During the news conference, after recounting the details of Bulger's capture, Agent Delorier added practically defiantly, quote, Although there are those who doubted our resolve, it never wavered. We followed every lead. We explored every possibility. And when those ran out, we did not sit back and wait for the phone to ring, unquote. Within days, that statement turned out to be demonstrably untrue. Steve Katz, the executive producer of America's Most Wanted, related in an interview that over the years, a pattern of tips that he called a cluster were coming from the Southern California area. He specifically mentioned Keith Messina's tip about the Santa Monica Pier, but he added several others, one with a specific address four blocks from Whitey's apartment and two from San Diego from an Amtrak agent and an individual who claimed to see Bulger on an escalator outside of a theater exhibiting the film The Departed. Despite the television show having turned all of this information over to the FBI, these individuals were never contacted. When asked about this, the FBI conveniently replied that they were under a gag order and couldn't discuss the matter. They also responded to the obvious question of why the ad did not run in L.A. by stating that the media market there was too expensive for their budget. But this sounded pretty weak, considering that millions had already been spent sending agents on extensive boondoggles all over the world, and then instead of L.A., cities like Milwaukee, Phoenix, and Albuquerque were chosen. Why not omit cities and add L.A., especially when Ortiz claimed that dissemination through news media would eventually saturate any media market? Controversy continued to build. By June 24th, the story began to take on an almost surreal quality when it was credibly reported that the initial tip was phoned in from a woman in Reykjavik, Iceland, eventually confirmed by the Bureau. That meant that at 8 p.m., when the call was allegedly received, it would have been 3 a.m. in Iceland. Even worse for the FBI, unofficial photographs of Bulger and Grieg began to leak over the weekend, and the popular and media consensus was that from these photos the pair was unrecognizable. Both Lindsay Sear, the mother of his child, and Teresa Stanley, who conducted a 30-year relationship with him, eventually commented that they never would have recognized Whitey in spite of this long-term interaction. Although critics of the FBI and conspiracy theorists engaged in a practically orgiastic derision of each breaking headline, more esteemed individuals also weighed in with rational skepticism. The U.S. congressman representing the district encompassing South Boston, Stephen Lynch, demanded an immediate investigation by the Justice Department of the 16-year FBI search for Whitey Bulger. Like the previous Piccadilly nonsense, the sense of the story was that it was ridiculous to the point of insult. The former attorney general of the state of Massachusetts, Scott Harshbarger, could not have summed up the prevailing public perspective any better when he stated, quote, Anybody who has any prior connection with this case has a degree of skepticism that is palpable about how this all happened just now, coincidentally, at a time when we have just criticized Pakistan for not spotting Osama bin Laden for all these years, and we made a national issue of that. Here we are with a major fugitive 
clearly sanctioned by at least some members of the FBI, and only now we catch them, and with some ad on daytime TV, two days beforehand with a person calling from Iceland. The story alone just doesn't ring true, unquote. But like any 21st century news story, no matter how sensational, the energy began to ebb once Whitey and Catherine waived extradition and were transported back to Massachusetts. Separated permanently, Bulger was placed in strict solitary confinement in the Plymouth House of Correction, and Grieg was confined to a jail in Rhode Island. The next ripple occurred in early August when threatened with Freedom of Information Act lawsuits, the Marshal Service finally released the actual booking photos of the two fugitives. By then, both Bolger and Grieg had been photographed several times during transport to arraignment and confinement, and the photo release did not cause much reaction. More specifics would surface in October 2011 when the Boston Globe identified the Iceland tipster by name as Anna Bjorn's daughter a.k.a. Anna Bjorn, a graphic designer, yoga instructor, animal lover, model, actress, and Miss Iceland of 1974. As one of the world's most beautiful and successful models in the 1970s, according to a People magazine profile, Bjorn had appeared in one of Noxima's take-it-off shaving cream ads, as well as in movies and TV shows, including More American Graffiti and Fantasy Island. She and her partner were dividing their time between Reykjavik and Santa Monica, where they lived near Bulger and Grieg. According to neighbors, Beyond's daughter bonded with Greg over their shared devotion to a stray cat. So that turns into an immediate recognition of a neighbor and her companion and the deduction both are the two most wanted fugitives in America? The PSA does not even mention animals and only shows a very dated brief photo of Grieg, Bulger, and a dog. What are the odds that at 3 a.m. in Iceland, a yoga instructor who vacations in Santa Monica caught the CNN report, glimpsed Grieg's much younger face, and immediately made the connection? This while having no prior reason to associate the elderly couple with Bulger or organized crime. She then leapt for the phone and in the middle of the night provided the FBI with a name and address. And then among the windfall of tips, the FBI and the U.S. Marshals Service, in a matter of hours, immediately picked this tip among all others to focus on, which based on their own timeline would have been necessary. Considering the speed and precision with which the Bureau handled interactions with, among others, Dylan Roof, who the FBI illegally allowed to purchase a handgun he used to kill nine African Americans, tips about Nicholas Cruz, the Florida school shooter who killed 17 people, and Robert Hansen, an FBI agent who, for 20 years, evaded Bureau detection while spying for both the Soviet Union and Russia in a manner later described as, quote, the worst intelligence disaster in U.S. history, unquote, this would seem out of character. What are the odds, moreover, that among Grieg's many neighbors, especially retirees who saw her and Bulger on a regular basis, interacted with them and were acutely familiar with the woman's passion for stray cats, not one would have also seen the PSA on CNN and made the split-second connection. Of all of the calls made to the FBI, there was only one call from anyone with ties to Santa Monica, Anna Bjorn's daughters. In fact, those residents could not believe that their two neighbors were the notorious couple. 
Josh Bond, their apartment building manager, who was quite friendly with Bolger and routinely interacted with him, never recognized the gangster, despite having attended Boston University. Although some accounts claimed he had never heard of Bolger, he himself stated he knew of him while in Boston. He just never saw his photo. Miss Iceland is not known to have any Boston connection. When Boston Globe reporters approached her in her hometown, she ran inside her residence and her partner sent an email asking the paper to respect her privacy. Her companion, always described as a businessman, is actually Haldor Goodmanson, the CEO emeritus of Iceland's largest ad agency, certainly high on the list of any CIA station chief's asset wish list, if not already on it. Beyond's daughter received all $2 million of the Bolger reward. The FBI refused to reveal the recipient of the $100,000 Grieg award, but it is believed to have gone to Josh Bond. Beyond's daughter has never commented publicly on her involvement in the Bolger arrest. The seeming final act of the Whitey Bolger saga began with his trial on June 12, 2013, on 32 counts of racketeering that included 19 allegations of murder. Although riveting on a daily basis with testimony from a rogues gallery of Boston criminals, including Kevin Weeks, John Martirano, and Steve Flemmy, the trial became anticlimactic when Bolger refused to testify. He declared the trial a sham because he was unable to mount a defense of immunity granted by the DOJ and FBI, a defense that was barred before the trial even began. His former bluster, in which he proclaimed he would bring the FBI down with him, was nowhere in evidence. His main focus seemed to be on denying that he was a government informant and that he murdered Deborah Davis and Debbie Hussey. On the former, his informant status was emphatically verified through both documentation and testimony. On the latter, he was convicted of murdering Debbie Hussey, but the jury did not reach a verdict on the murder of Deborah Davis, unsure whether it was Flemmy or Whitey. Although it was unlikely that Bolger would be able to escape at least some guilty verdicts, his attorney, Hank Brennan, received high praise for eliciting both the corruption and incompetence of the FBI, as well as the scandalous relationship between the Bureau and its informants. One of the highlights of the trial was the cross-examination by Brennan of John Morris, the disgraced former partner of John Conley, who admitted on the witness stand that he and Conley allowed the prosecution of Jimmy Flynn for the murder of Brian Halloran and Michael Donahue, despite knowing positively that Whitey Bolger was behind the killing. Luckily, despite the testimony of three eyewitness members of law enforcement who testified that as he was dying, Halloran implicated Flynn, Flynn was acquitted by a jury in 1986. He very easily could have been convicted. So for those who were so quick to absolve Robert Mueller of any wrongdoing concerning the frame-ups of 1975 or any improper activity regarding Bolger himself, the question must be asked. What did he know during the trial of Jimmy Flynn? Halloran desperately attempted to get into the witness protection program and was communicating regularly with numerous FBI agents in the Boston office who involved the DOJ in these negotiations. Any FBI agent familiar with his murder knew that it was carried out by Bolger and knew that Flynn had nothing to do with the killing. Did Mueller know this? If not, why not? He's never been asked, and he never will be. On August 12, 2013, Whitey Bolger was convicted of 31 of 32 racketeering counts, but only 11 of 19 murders. It seemed like a compromise of sorts from the jury, a feeling that was summed up 
afterwards by Patricia Donahue, the former wife of Michael Donahue, who stated, quote, It's been 31 years since my husband was murdered. I'm in a catch-22 situation. We want Whitey to lose, but we don't want the government to win, unquote. On November 14, 2013, Bolger was sentenced to two life sentences plus five years. At that point, Catherine Grieg had already pled guilty to harboring a fugitive and identity theft conspiracy, and on June 12, 2012, she received a sentence of eight years, much of it spent in a Minnesota institution. Never renouncing her stand-up Southie roots, she refused to testify in front of a 2015 grand jury investigating if anyone else aided Whitey's flight. This added 21 months to her sentence. In 2019, she was released to house arrest, which consisted of time spent at the Hingham, Massachusetts home of the daughter and son-in-law of Bill Bolger, as well as the home of her sister. On July 23, 2020, she was released from home confinement and is currently living with her sister in South Boston. She was able to maintain ownership of her Quincy home during her sentence, but was forced to subsequently sell the house to satisfy government fines. In 2013, Teresa Stanley was already deceased from lung cancer. In August of 2012, before she died, she reconciled with Whitey, apologizing by letter for speaking with the FBI. He wrote her back saying that he forgave her. Chris Nyland and Karen Stanley subsequently divorced, and the Stanley family and Chris Nyland have adamantly denied that the Stanley Cup ring in Whitey's possession came from them. It is possible that Whitey might have had the ring manufactured on his own. It and other possessions were auctioned off by the federal government, the proceeds as well as cash seized divided among Bolger's victims. In 1999, John Martirano pled guilty to 19 murders and received a sentence of 12 years. He served eight and was released in 2007, given $20,000 and also got to retain any rights to publishing or film revenue, which materialized in the form of a book written with Boston Herald columnist Howie Carr. He is believed to be living in Milford, Massachusetts. Kevin Weeks pled guilty to complicity in five murders and received a five-year sentence. He was released in 2005, collaborated on two books, and declined participation in the Witness Protection Program, living openly today somewhere in Boston. John Conley was released from prison in 2021 on medical grounds, allegedly with less than a year to live. He has consistently maintained that he is a scapegoat and was sacrificed by higher-ups, needing to shield themselves from the fallout of the Bolger scandal, despite the fact that he was paid over $235,000 in cash from Bolger and Flemmy. He lives in Massachusetts under house arrest and will be under parole supervision until 2047 or his death. He is still alive and still collects his federal pension. John Morris received immunity for agreeing to testify against various defendants, including Conley and Bulger, and was not prosecuted for any of his FBI malfeasance, including accepting $7,000 in bribes and facilitating murder. He eventually married his secretary mistress who appeared in the courtroom in 2013 when Morris described soliciting a bribe to enable her to visit him in Georgia. He retired from the bureau, worked as a wine consultant, and was able to retain his government pension. Paul Rico was indicted in Florida and Oklahoma for murder. He died in prison in 2004 before any trial took place. He is the only other FBI official to be seriously charged in the Whitey Bulger saga. Pat Nee was arrested in 1990 for an armored car robbery and received a 37-year sentence. 
inexplicably, he was released from jail in 2000, despite his role in at least three Bolger murders and his likely participation in the killing of Brian Halloran and Michael Donahue as the second unidentified mass gunman, Nee was never indicted and was even excused from testifying at the Whitey Bolger 2013 trial. His brother's house, nicknamed the Haunty, was demolished in 2019 and replaced with a four-story condominium, typical of the gentrification of South Boston, a neighborhood Bolger today would probably find unrecognizable. Although the DOJ has never explained this leniency, it is believed that Pat Nee, like Whitey Bulger, became a federal informant. Stephen Flemmy is serving a life sentence in an undisclosed Florida prison. He was denied compassionate release in 2021. His scheduled parole date is in 2218, when he will be 282 years old. He can reapply for compassionate release in 2030. Despite his lengthy incarceration, he seems to have retained the bleakly sardonic sense of humor that was a trademark of the bulger Flemmy gang. During the Bolger trial, when a defense lawyer tried to infer that Flemmy was secretly tucked away in some club fed with food so good he actually got hot dogs and hamburgers on July 4th, Flemmy, despite the grim nature of his testimony, convulsed the courtroom with laughter when he shook his head and responded, quote, If I fed that food to a dog, it would bite me, unquote. Upon conviction, James J. Whitey Bolger was first sent to a federal prison in Tucson, Arizona. Eventually, he was transferred to Coleman Federal Penitentiary in Sumterville, Florida. Presumably, in some modest amount of time, it was believed that the imminent news of his passing would arrive. But wait, there's more. On October 25, 2018, it was announced that Bolger had been moved to a transfer facility in Oklahoma City. There was no additional explanation of where he was destined, but now, confined to a wheelchair, it was presumed that he was headed to any number of penal hospitals, perhaps on his last legs. On the evening of October 29th, Bolger arrived at the U.S. Penitentiary in Hazleton, West Virginia, a high-security prison known as Misery Mountain, where two inmates were murdered in the previous six weeks. Unfortunately, it also housed at least two individuals who made it completely unsuitable for Bolger. One was Photius Freddy Gius, serving a life sentence for the murder of two underworld criminals. Although of Greek ethnicity, Gius was a hitman who operated in Springfield, Massachusetts, and was affiliated with the Mafia's Genovese crime family. In fact, he was arrested as part of the FBI's investigation of organized crime in the western Massachusetts area, an investigation that eventually involved the administration of Mayor Michael Albano. Paul de Colagero was also a northeastern Massachusetts organized crime figure, serving a lengthy sentence for murder. On the morning of October 30th, only minutes after Whitey Bolger's prison cell door was unlocked at 6 a.m., closed-circuit cameras showed Gius and DiColagero entering Bolger's cell. They left seven minutes later. Whitey Bolger was discovered dead at approximately 8.20 a.m. Beaten with a sock-wrapped padlock and stabbed with a prison-manufactured shiv, his tongue and eyes also lacerated, his body returned to his bed to impede discovery. The Bolger family was not aware of his transfer to West Virginia, and Jackie Bolger found out about his brother's death from the media. However, it seems that many inmates knew of Whitey's impending transfer. Sean McKinnon, Gius's cellmate and the third man eventually indicted for his murder was recorded on a prison line telling his mother in advance that Whitey was on his way. 
understanding that anyone from Bolger's era with ties to the Massachusetts Mafia would have considered Bolger to be an especially vile rat. A prison guard union official summed it up by commenting, this was akin to an administrative death sentence. Hank Brennan, one of Whitey's attorneys, stated, the mechanism used to murder him was really irrelevant. It's the persons who allowed it to happen that need accountability most. To that end, the Bolger family filed a wrongful death suit that discovered that Whitey's Florida prison administrators attempted to transfer him in April of 2018, but this was denied due to health reasons. The lawsuit claimed, quote, Mr. Bolger's physical medical condition was fraudulently upgraded to effectuate a transfer in place to Hazleton on or about October 29th or October 30th, 2018. To be clear, we do not believe that the transfer to Hazleton and placement in general population was simply dangerous, negligent, reckless, and irresponsible. We believe it was also intentional and part of a conspiracy among the Bureau of Prisons and DOJ employees and others to intentionally cause Mr. Bolger's serious injuries and death, unquote. Whitey Bolger's disciplinary issues in Florida were well known, with at least one pointed threat to a staff member. But he was an 89-year-old, confined to a wheelchair, with serious health issues, and a simple transfer to a prison hospital facility would have appropriately addressed this problem. Who then would have been motivated to harm Bolger in such a deliberate fashion? It turns out that Whitey was quite a prolific letter writer in prison. We know this because of the many individuals who mentioned that they had corresponded with him while he was incarcerated, including former neighbors in Santa Monica, school children, and even former members of the jury that convicted him. One such jury member, Janet Ular, received over 70 letters from Bolger over the course of five years. Bolger spoke of many things and even discussed his government-sponsored LSD experience and how it might have affected his personality, a standard self-serving whitey theme. But another common thread was Bolger's perspective on the investigation of Donald Trump by Robert Mueller. Whitey was quite supportive of Trump and predictably critical of Mueller. Only a month before his transfer and murder, he wrote to Ular, quote, Sorry to hear Trump is being boxed in by so many. Trump is experiencing what Mueller and company can orchestrate. Mueller should observe biblical saying, Let he who is without sin cast the first stone, unquote. Bolger signed off with the postscript, I wonder if Mueller thinks of me. Give my regards to the president. Do prison staff monitor inmate correspondence? Yes, routinely and methodically, especially a high-profile inmate like Whitey. Was someone in a position of high authority within the DOJ, which also administers the prison system, uneasy about the thought of a loose cannon like Whitey Bulger, commenting specifically about his own experience and knowledge concerning Robert Mueller? We will never know. The Bulger family wrongful death lawsuit was dismissed in 2022. The judge ruling that the courts have no legal authority to review housing decisions made by the Bureau of Prisons. Recently, a man named Freddie Weichel won a $33 million civil lawsuit against various Massachusetts law enforcement agencies, including the Boston Police and Massachusetts State Police. He spent 37 years in prison until a police report that was improperly withheld surfaced that implicated the actual killer. 
Whitey Bolger in 2014 came forward and admitted that he had helped frame Weichel because, despite seeing him at a bar on the night of the murder, he told the FBI not to tell this to local authorities to protect a criminal associate, Tommy Barrett. Kevin Weeks also testified to that effect at Weichel's eventual civil trial, adding that Bolger threatened to kill Weichel and his family if he ever mentioned Barrett's name. After prevailing in his civil trial, Freddie Weichel was asked what he thought of the recent murder of Whitey Bolger. Weichel's response, not from a gullible member of the public, biased media, or self-interested public official, but the words of a man who experienced both the brutal ruthlessness of Whitey Bolger and the casual corruption and incompetence of collective law enforcement, especially the FBI, was unequivocal. I wouldn't be surprised if this was a setup. That's a lot of coincidences there. I don't believe in coincidences. It would probably be wise to apply that same analysis to the entire life and crimes of James Whitey Bulger. Thank you for listening to part three of this podcast about Whitey Bulger. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books Black Mass by Dick Lear and Gerard O'Connell, Whitey, The Life of America's Most Notorious Crime Boss by Dick Lear and Gerard O'Connell, Whitey Bulger, America's Most Wanted Gangster by Kevin Cullen and Shelley Murphy, Most Wanted, Pursuing Whitey Bulger by Thomas J. Foley, Whitey on Trial by Margaret McLean and John Lieberman, a small portion of this material previously appeared in the December 7, 2017 edition of the Washington Babylon in the article entitled Whitey Bolger and the FBI. What did Robert Mueller know and when did he know it? By Philip D. Gibbons. Numerous articles from the Boston Herald and Boston Globe were consulted, as well as the audio archives of radio station WBUR-FM Boston. And thanks to James Dirt Donovan, Somerville, Mass., special consultant on Howie Winter and the Winter Hill Mob. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Subscribe to my YouTube page at Noblesse Oblige and also rate us on iTunes. If you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website.